Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we begin a new study on the book of Ezra. Now Ezra is a a history book in scripture, and you're going to find it in the Old Testament. It's going to come right after you've finished up the books of Chronicles. So really the section that is made of history books, you go from the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is a lot of history and good stuff. Then you get other historical books like Joshua and Judges. Even Ruth is still a historical narrative of something that happened in a specific family, but it points us at the genealogy of Christ. And there's great importance to it in that. And then also, you keep moving forward, you find yourself in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then you reach Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, a few more historical books before you jump into wisdom in the Old Testament. So your Old Testament is not ordered chronologically per se. The history books, in a sense, are. But just that section. So you go from the history books, then to the words of wisdom, and then you go to the prophets. And many of the prophets actually predate Ezra's writing. Ezra's writing is one of the, I guess you'd actually say the newest writings of the Old Testament. The intertestamental period is going to come after Malachi. And in the prophets, Malachi was the last of the prophets. But there you're getting, I did not quite look up the date on Malachi. Let's see if I can find that for you real quick. If you want to find Malachi in your Bible, just turn to the New Testament, turn to Matthew's Gospel, and flip back a few pages, depending on if it's a study Bible or not, and you will find Malachi because it's the first thing, it's the last thing there. So Malachi is written in 430. BC. Ezra is written in 440 BC. So you can see how closely related we are in terms of the sweeping chronology of the Old Testament and of history. This is right about before the writings of scripture cease for a few hundred years. Well, 400 years as we wait for the era of the New Testament, the time of Christ. So Major events to recap before we can dig into Ezra. 587 BC, the Babylonian army besieged the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God where the temple was, and they took it. They tore down the city walls. They destroyed the temple. They carried off the holy vessels, uh, the things that were holy to the Lord's house and his service. They carried those off to Babylon. Uh, We learn in this text, in this chapter, that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, use them to worship his false gods. They carried off the people into exile. 537 BC. Well, you could go to 538. 49 years later, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeats Babylon and becomes the new ruler of that region, including the people of God who had been captive. Within a year, so by 537, he has released them. He has sent them home to Jerusalem and to rebuild. They don't start right away, and it's not until 517 that they actually re- they finish the work of the temple, 517, 516. But that gets you to then the 70 years that we were told in Scripture the Babylonian exile would last. It's actually based not on living in the city of Jerusalem. It's 
based on the temple. It's based on God's presence with his people. And that time, that, that extra amount of time it ended up taking. And then the first half of this book, the first six chapters are going to cover, in a sense, that history. And then it skips. In chapter 7, you're going to go to this man named Ezra. We don't learn about Ezra really until chapter 7. And the rest of the book is going to be an account of what happens really with a second wave, if you want to call it that, of people that move back to Jerusalem. So we'll see that. It's going to be about a week from now. So let's begin with the history narrative of chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of Yahweh that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of Yahweh that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred ten bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were fifty-four hundred. All these did Sheshbazar bring up. When the, when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. So right off the bat, in the first year of Cyrus, that would be 538 BC. It's not really his first year himself personally of leadership, but it's, it's Persia's defeat of Babylon that really puts this empire on the spot. So the first year of Cyrus' reign is a reference to that. In fact, Cyrus... In the Persian language, Cyrus means king. So their first king in their own tongue is simply named king. End of an interesting note there in the history. By the word of Yahweh through Jeremiah. So this is Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 through 13, where you can read about God destroying Babylon because of really their own wickedness and how they had dealt wickedly with God's people. And you even get the mention there of the 70 years, which we note historically ends up being true. And Jeremiah was written before that happened. Jeremiah passes away by, by the time that, well, well before that second temple is built, uh, which is 70 years later. So 587, Jerusalem falls, 
within maybe a decade or two, Jeremiah passes away. So prophecy, God can speak of future things. This is good news for us because he has spoken of the future of you with him in paradise. If God cannot prophesy, if God cannot promise something that will happen in the days to come, then all of his promises to you are meaningless. So we as Christians do believe that God can speak of the future and it be true. Even Isaiah, who predates Jeremiah significantly, Isaiah goes back to the 700s BC. Even Isaiah was able to call Cyrus by name in his writings. Modern scholars end up throwing it out and saying he couldn't have possibly known that. That means Isaiah didn't write this and it must have been written at a later time. We believe God's word to be true. We believe God can and does prophesy of the future and that he was sharing the good news with his people in advance. When you actually get to the words of Cyrus, these are quite fascinating. So Cyrus declares by name, he names Yahweh. And if you go to the Old Testament account where we get that name, Exodus chapter 3, uh, you would learn that Yahweh means he is. God says, I am who I am. And then he tells Moses to say, he is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. To speak Yahweh's name is a statement of faith. It is a confession that he is God. And Cyrus does that. The Persian king does that. Not only that, he admits he's the God of heaven and that he has given to Cyrus, that God Yahweh has given to Cyrus all the kingdoms of the earth. Cyrus' authority rightly does come from God. He's acknowledging this here, which is impressive. It gives you the, the hope that we would see this Cyrus man someday when we get to paradise. We'd like to see all people there. So here's some words that give some hope for that. Cyrus admits God has charged him to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So Cyrus is going to pay for that to happen. Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people. So Cyrus is sending this word out throughout his lands, throughout his kingdom. And whoever hears it, whoever is a, a follower of Yahweh, go, leave, go to Jerusalem, return to your home, rebuild your home. Cyrus releases them and blesses them in God's name. Rebuild his house. Now, as we've been talking about how a marvelous of a statement of faith this is, verse 3 might put a question mark on that. The God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus is going to take Yahweh and he's going to limit him to Jerusalem. Now, it could still be a faithful and true statement, acknowledging the fact that God dwells in his temple, which is in Jerusalem. But we have other reason, unfortunately, to believe that Cyrus was probably a polytheist, meaning he believed in multiple gods, um, in which case, if that holds true, we won't meet Cyrus someday in paradise. Um, there is a historical archaeological find that is of extreme importance, and these are apologetics things, and, and if you can find these things and see these things, it's great. You can study this one with your family. Look it up. Uh, the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a cylinder-shaped piece of pottery. I think it's about the size of a football. And it has written on it some of the conquests of King Cyrus of Persia. It was discovered in 1879 in Iraq, which would have been at Babylon's land 
uh, in the ancient days. And it, it accounts some of his victories, but also it tells us of his tendency to send captive peoples when he would conquer a new place. If there were captives living there that had been slaves to another, he would send them home and he would encourage them to go home and also encourage them to worship their gods. So this account in Ezra chapter 1 is historically, I mean, we would have known it to be true as Christians anyway, because we believe God's word. But here we have this historically verifiable piece of pottery from the ancient world that so it's existing outside of scripture and it speaks of what happens in scripture. This is a, a wonderful boost, a tool, a confidence kind of thing, and an ability to speak to those outside of the faith when they challenge and question our faith and they say it's a bunch of made up myths. Well, it's historically accurate. Here's, here's something to look at that shows that it's historically accurate. Unfortunately, like verse 3 is possibly putting a question mark by Cyrus' great statement of faith, the cylinder does too. Um, as he blesses the Babylonian god there, um, Marduk, I think it was. Anyway, that's a bit off topic, but very much related to what we have going on here. You can find the Cyrus cylinder. I believe it's being housed still at the British Museum. I think they let it travel. So if it ever comes to the States or if it ever comes near you, wherever you might be, it could be a cool piece of history to be able to show your kids. Uh, I would love to be able to show my kids pieces like that someday. So maybe we'll get the chance. All right. Now in verse four, really, just like when the exiles, when the Israelites left in the exodus from Egypt, they were able to plunder the Egyptians. Really, they almost do the same thing here, leaving this exile in Babylon. Cyrus gives them a bunch of stuff. He, he loads them up with silver and gold goods and beasts from their neighbors, in addition to free will offerings. So the encouragement to all of the, the new Persians, whether they were Babylonians or whatever they were before, the encouragement was give an offering to this God, give an offering to the, go to the temple in Jerusalem, and go ahead and give other stuff to the people so that they have things as well. That's quite a bit, uh, quite a quite a move by, by Cyrus. Now, verse 5, the elders rise up, so the, the heads of the households, uh, from Judah and Benjamin. Those are the two tribes that when the kingdom of God's people split under King Rehoboam. So you had Saul and then David and then Saul, David's son Solomon and then Solomon's son Rehoboam. So the fourth Israelite king proved to be a terrible leader. And the nation split underneath him within two months of the start of his reign. Judah and Benjamin stuck with Rehoboam, while the other tribes all left. They became Israel to the north. The two tribes became Judah in the south. Judah ends up being the only nation of the two that shows any faithfulness in the years to come, although that wavers. But these are the tribes then. These are the ones who return. Not all of God's people, but the remnant that stuck around um, in the Davidic line, really, when you want to talk about it that way, to King David. And again, it's not all. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. So not all, the, even the Judaites, not all of them will go. But some do. They go back, 537. And in addition to that, Cyrus sends out the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from when, he, when he destroyed the temple. So the holy instruments that were used to serve Yahweh. Cyrus sends them back with the people as well. He actually sends them back with Sheshbazar, 
who he has appointed. So Sheshbazar would be one of God's people, one of these Judaites. And Cyrus takes him and appoints him to be governor over Judah. The word here we see in the English is prince. Um, prince, that's an okay word. Um, he's basically a minor ruler. And so this is a ruling title being assigned to him. He's ruling over Judah for the sake of Cyrus. So it's still Persia. And this is still Cyrus's land now, which is why when Persia is defeated later by the Greeks, it becomes part of the Greeks' territory. And when the Greeks get defeated by Rome, it becomes part of the Roman Empire, which gets you to the context of the New Testament and the things that we see happening with Jesus and the disciples and, and, and things like that. So they go back. They return to Jerusalem. And the word is up because Jerusalem is really on a hill. So not thinking, you know, of a picture of a map going up, but rather, you know, looking around you. They have to ascend. They have to go up onto the hill that is Jerusalem. The question to consider with your children today might be this. As they go home, for the first time in 70 years, as they go home, what should they do first? Now, your kids might take that very, very literally and say something like uh, give thanks or pray or, you know, sing uh, a song thanking God. Those kinds of answers are great and good. Uh, if they go that way, encourage that first. And then once you get through that conversation, do push them beyond that. When they actually make it to Jerusalem, what should they be working on? What should their focus be? This is going to set the stage. Uh, for the, the historical events that come afterwards. What did they focus on? What should they have focused on? And we're going to see those don't end up being the same thing. So stick around for the days to come.